Technology and food have to be in the top five passions for any nerd. I'm Chris Riley, tech advocate for Splunk, SweetCode contributor, and bad coder turned dev enthusiast. I sit down to eat with techies to talk about modern technologies, careers in tech, and advancement in development practices. My employer does not own or sponsor this podcast. My thoughts are my own, and no guests were drugged or coerced during the recording. This is Developers Eating the World. All right, so this is episode 32 of Developers Eating the World. We are in Boulder at Buddha Cafe. I'm here with Chris, another Chris. Um, met Chris at our meetup, right? It was a Splunk meetup. How did you find out about our meetup, by the uh, way? It was just, so I was just looking for tech stuff in the area, and I was like, oh, a Splunk open house. Cool, I have no relation to that, but I was... I was straight up like, I'm going to crash it, I'm going to eat your food, and maybe I'll meet some people in the process. <laughs> and I met you, so like... <laughs> it, it worked out. Well, you are in tech, so it qualifies. I believe there was one person there who literally wasn't in tech and was there just for the food. Um, so that's pretty crazy. So you are about to start a new job. I, it's been my first week, so yeah. Oh yeah, so you're a weekend. And what is your role? Okay, so I'm an independent developer, and um, what that means is we're a, um, I'm working for that small kind of uh, startup where it's, where the person that's been running it has been in the industry for about 20 years, so it's like, he's not chasing like the VC growth money. Uh -huh. It's really more of a like, I want to build a really solid base and just kind of nice. ride this for a while. So um, what that does mean is that I'll wear a lot of hats. Um, a lot of my work is going to be back-end focused. Um, uh, but, you know, the, we're maintaining a lot of clients. So front-end stories come in and we'll get those too. So. Yeah, so does that also mean you're going to have to engage with the customer a lot? Uh, I will probably not have a direct customer-facing role. Like, I've sat in on a few meetings um, with prospective clients just so that the whole team knows what's going on. Um, but if that comes in, then it's like, yeah, I'm totally there. Um, I have a background as an insurance agent, so there's a lot more technical communication <laughs> right. than you would imagine. So you were saying, you know, being an insurance agent, you got to uh, yeah, deal um, with... That, a lot of customers. That was entirely a cl uh, client-facing role, right. and there's a um, there's a lot of stuff that comes into an insurance contract where it's like, yeah, I know that we cover water damage, and like you have water damage, but in the context of this contract that you sign, water damage means this, so we can cover this part of it, and it's a lot of those skills are really transferable and I've definitely found myself flexing those muscles when it comes to those client meetings where it's like oh yeah no we we have a service we can provide and this is how we can help you and then we can come to a win-win yeah and those are consumers much less mm -hmm. like business users yeah and they we there's definitely a bunch of points of contact where it's like sometimes we have a really technical facing person and sometimes it's our end user or the project person on the client side has no technical experience at all. They're just like, hey, this is how I want this to work. So it really runs the gamut. And that's something I like about consulting. Yeah. So how did you go from insurance agent to developer? So I went to a boot camp 
Cole Turing School of Software and Design. If you're a fan of this podcast, apparently more than Yeah, we've done, this would be the third of the <laughs> yeah. Turing student, which is great. Exactly. Um, and they're a great program that's ran out of Denver. I'm a graduate of the back end program. Um, so back end. So they, they segment it by kind of, okay. So the, it's a full stack program, but it's kind of like, um, I guess a major minor in college. Um, so it's, you'll either get three or three quarters of doing like a back end or front end. And then the last quarter you switch off and then you dip your toes into either the front end side or the back end side. So. Got it. Yeah, I was just, we just had a PI planning today. And I realized, you know, I, the last time I was like a developer developer was <laughs> 15 years ago. It was a while ago. Um, but I realized in that, like if I were to go and be a developer, my aptitude very clearly is like middle tier API development type stuff. Definitely not front end. <laughs> um, definitely not front end. Yeah. Um, even though I am always admire good user interfaces, it, I think it would drive me up the wall. But I'm a bad developer, so none of that's going to happen. Um, and I could just uh, talk about it. So Turing School, it's a pretty intense program, isn't it? Yeah, it's, um, it's seven months long, which is a, how, how the founder curriculum had described it as the, that was the minimum amount of time that we can get you to impart what you needed. And that, it's been that way from inception where they've been like, how, we're looking at like getting a very high return on investment and trying to get people out very quickly. Um, right, and that's because when it was originally founded, even before Galvanize and before any of that, it was you know he or the founder of Turing was approached and was like, hey, yeah, so we need people to hop into development. What's the least amount of time you can do that? And they're like, I, I guess I could do it in seven months. And wow, yeah, it kind of yeah, took off from there. That's crazy. Um, yeah, I've been exposed to some camps like that previously where like the intensity is amazing, but what I've come to realize, so again, back, I guess I'm talking about myself more than I normally do, but um, when I got my degree, it was a computer science degree, which was fantastic. I got to do really cool stuff like genetic algorithms and a whole bunch of schema stuff. and. It was all very cool, but it wasn't practical. There was nothing tactical I could do with it. Like we used Java to do everything, but I didn't come out a good developer. <laughs> I came out as somebody who understood the architecture and conceptual stuff very well, but not being able to implement it. And it didn't do a lot of justice to a career as a developer, that's for sure. Um, so there's definitely, definitely different things being taught. And I would hesitate to say that one is better than the other I think that I think that there's like some nuance there because it's like um, I don't want to like put one path on a pedestal and one not what I will right. say is that you're being trained for two very different things I guess um, like if uh, if I was not a web dev and instead like they hired me on to program like a satellite or a robot or something, I'd be like, cool, I straight up can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could learn. Uh, possibly, but I 
I mean, kind of being technical in nature and having that aptitude, because you're always going to be learning. True. Now, whatever you're developing in now, what are you developing in Node? Um, a lot of Ruby on Rails, um, okay. some Node, um, vanilla JS, and React on the front end. So. So your next job is going to be a completely different stack, probably. probably. <laughs> <laughs> or the stack that you're using, if you stay with this company for a long period of time, is going to change. I mean, I feel like you always have to be able to learn. Mm. Um, and maybe that's what doing a seven-month kind of intense program allows you to do a little bit, is like be comfortable doing that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But uh, now that I'm gainfully employed, I'd like to take at least like a few months to recombobulate and <laughs> go from there. Um, yeah, I bet. That said, yeah, I've... Um, what I'll probably be looking at is like just working on personal projects and getting those or doing most of my learning on the side, like because doing day to day, like getting the guts of stuff, that's really awesome. Um, but in order to stay like on top of stuff, it's I think that like uh, as developers, we really have to push ourselves to stay relevant. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. So it's like find find some side hustle or, or block off five hours a week to learn something new. Yeah, I mean, I try to do the same. It's difficult for me. Mm. Um, this week was uh, building an API in Node. That's why I'm kind of on this API group. Oh, okay. Um, but my free time projects are <laughs> building plugins for Minecraft. Oh, neat. Well, that's Java. <laughs> that's, that was yeah. your first language. So. And, and logging my Minecraft server. <laughs> um, but that's about the extent of it. It's not extremely useful. Okay, so honestly, that's like that was probably some of my first technical experience ever was like building bonds for Morrowind back when that was new. So yeah, that's, well, that's what I was going <laughs> to ask you. Actually, is like, have you always been interested in tech? Um, I say that like I, my father was an engineer and he was very technical. So like. Some of my earliest memories are me playing with Windows 3.1 when that was new tech. Oh, yeah, Chips Challenge. Oh, my gosh, All yeah. day long, Chips Challenge. <laughs> yeah, I definitely was not as good <laughs> that as I could have been, considering I was, like, four, but... Um, oh, that's not funny, man. Oh, gosh. I wasn't four. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Uh, but, yeah, so... I guess with that kind of foundation, like, oh, okay, tech was definitely an emerging thing, and I had access to it from an early age. Yeah, that's important. Yeah, and I feel like as millennials and as, uh, gosh, Gen Z, whatever we call the next generation that comes after us, like, people say that millennials are digital natives, but, like, very few people, I feel, had that experience of, like, oh, okay, I, I remember everything being online, and that's the reality for a lot of folks where it's like oh okay yeah we've uh, development's obviously a choice because it's literally everywhere they don't it's hard for me to even remember some of the boom but yeah, yeah well that's the hence Michael Andreessen's quote that is constantly used and overly used in the kind of catalyst for this podcast software is eating the world mm. but developers build software till the day that sentient beings are building software but that's that's nah. a little bit down the road, I think. No, I think metaprogramming will take care of that. Like, we'll just build a program that will write more programs. Right, <laughs> so, yeah. Well, um, actually, I did a little bit of that in college. It was interesting, but it was very limited, where 
you would um, build a neural net and you had to give it this crazy, um, well, anyways, I'm, I'm, I'll spare you. I could go on that. I'm not going to go on that tangent. Oh, uh, you're fine. You're fine. <laughs> um, so you're a gamer too? A little bit. Yeah. Um, not so much now. I think yeah, that. Um, I think that like I played more games when before I went to Turing, and then afterwards I'm like, oh, okay, now you like detoxified from all games. My, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and um, yeah, let's see. Now I've mostly been playing stuff that gives me like nostalgia fuzzies, like yeah. Final Fantasy VII and Nine okay, and stuff. Okay, you just yeah. said it. It's coming out in like 15 days, oh, oh, right? Well, let's see. I bought the original version, like because I saw that on the Switch store. And I'm like, oh wow, I haven't played this since I was in middle school. Let me let me relive some of the nostalgia days. So. Yeah, I bought it too, and it's coming out in 15 days, so expect this podcast just to vanish in the next 15 days. I'm not going to do another episode, maybe not even go to work. Uh, yeah, it's oh, Well, crazy. it depends on how much sick time you have banked, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, well, oh, you know, oh, with the coronavirus. I think I'm coming yeah, down with whatever. Yeah. yeah, it's crazy. Um, actually, you know, one of the things that kind of was an aha moment today, again, when we did our PI and talking about application development is how to be productive as a remote developer. I mean, there's some organizations where all developers are remote, um, but a lot of, like, your efficiency can come from collaborating with the team. Right, um, and that's actually the situation I'm in now. Um, the company that I work for, Rietta, is completely remote, so. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you're remote now. I am. That's cool. How and do you like it? It is, um, it's been a little bit of an adjustment period, but like overall, I really like the flexibility that comes with that. Yeah. Um, like if I, it's, uh, I guess that puts the independent and the independent contractor part of things. So what do you think is required to make a remote developer effective? So in terms of like the environment, culture maybe even. Mm. Uh, I feel like a lot of it comes down to individual temperaments and um, it really has to be the right fit for the developer as well as the right fit for the company. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, uh, before this I hadn't had experience with remote work or telework or something like that. Like. Um, Occasionally, when I was working at in, in insurance at uh, John McGarity's office here in Boulder, if there was like a snowstorm or something when I was living up in Longmont, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, uh, I can't come in. It's like we're we're having squalls. It's it's not going to be a thing. And it's like, okay, yeah, just do what you can from home. And I could not do much from home. <laughs> it was like. Okay, yeah, I'll make a good faith effort for like the first hour and then right. I'll ride that out. Yeah. Um, with this job, I haven't had a I haven't had a huge problem with working from home and keeping my attention on there because the task at hand is so engaging. Um, if what I could see possibly happening is if things somehow start to get more routine and I get more comfortable, then I might need more of a context switch or something like that. Like, right. Yeah. Um, 
But yeah, so far, and admittedly, like, it's been, what, 72 hours or something? <laughs> like, in those 72 hours, it's been fine for me to work from home. I've been able to be productive, dial in, and um, since the team is remote, like, we're all kind of used to async responses. If I need help, I can just, like, send up a Slack message, and then I know that people will see it and get back to me whenever they get a spare moment. Right. Yeah, it's, um, so I have the same thing. I actually prefer to be in an office. I could be fully remote. We have a lot of team members in Colorado who've never seen our beautiful new office. Mm. But um, for me, and, and that's how they're the most effective. For me, it depends on what I'm doing. So if I'm writing blog posts, I kind of have to be home because I'm easily distracted. But the reason I want to be into an, in an office is because I, I want to be distracted. Like I want something that's kind of out of the, the normal scope of things and I can engage with people and get different ideas and stuff. So yeah. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting in like modern development is a lot of application development has to do with things like managing your repo correctly and release automation, CI, CD, testing, all of that stuff. Do you feel like Turing School prepared you for that? I would say that it prepared me for it um, like very, very, very well. Hmm. So um, surprisingly so. And that's, um, that's what I've heard from other alumni and other people that have been in the industry after Turing was like, oh yeah, I was able to fall into a professional workflow fairly quickly. Um, and they start that from, they start that very early in the back-end program. I can't speak for the front-end program, but um, when I was working with the front-end team, they were on top of their stuff as well. <laughs> but uh, from the first week two weeks that you're in there, they're already going like, have good get hygiene, have a work in a team, like the, um, so for our listeners, Turing is uh, project-based. Okay. So there's 12 projects over the course of the four quarters that you're there. And um, it goes solo project, paired project, group project, another solo project. Mm. So from week two or three, they're like, cool, we need to teach you how to handle merge conflicts, how to handle your time, and how to you know, track what you're doing. And by instilling that in people like very early, you're able to, or I felt very comfortable when I was moving to this environment where they are going, there's a super big push by our CEO to really get automated testing and right. automated deployment out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, just as a little background on why that's such a big deal is, um, so we're kind of a, our specialty is kind of security focused development. Okay. Um, for, a, I don't want to generalize, but for some teams, Security is not a acceptance requirement. <laughs> yes, please. Yeah, I think that's a fair generalization. <laughs> yeah. So. That's why AppSec and DevSecOps is such a big thing. Yeah, right and Frank's been doing DevSecOps since before it was cool. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's a, that's literally on one of his cards. But 
Um, but at his talk he gave at the Snowfrock conference just yesterday, um, he had an entire push to be like, hey, so if we have true test-driven development and if we have every, if we have everything that set up correctly, we should be able to have really quick production deployments. And that's extremely important from a application security standpoint because uh, once these vulnerabilities are discovered, there's like an average of slightly over a month before those vulnerabilities right. are patched in production. Right. So. Yeah, that's yeah. a big deal. So, and he really believes that like by using our tools and by automating our deployment processes and getting everything set up that way to where we can move very quickly and get new secure code out, then uh, we ultimately make better, safer software. Yeah, and I think that that's the opposite of the way most people think. They think that mm. by going faster, mm. you're making less secure software, but actually by going faster, you're able to respond to stuff faster as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like the ideal, and it's not it's not a big revolutionary ideal. It's not, this is not a brand new earth-shaking concept. It's just a, it's just a way of coding and thinking about these things with these obvious advantages and mindsets. Yeah. Um, and to go back to the original question, um, Turing introduced continuous integration tools like at about the third quarter because there's only so much you can get in there. Um, but they were doing test-driven development from that first quarter. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah. I, I, I was immediately like, I don't, I'm able to jump in there and start writing tests and start going red, green, red. <laughs> yeah, I'm pleasantly surprised that you said that because I've seen, generally I see exactly the opposite where people know how to code they can even be 10Xers, mm. but they don't know the process of coding and what it means to work within a team and build, get applications to production. And that is, can really make it very difficult for a new developer to get into the workforce. Uh, so yeah. that is great that they focus on that. It also helps that a lot of the instructors at Turing have, a, have several years of development experience um, from a lot of different fields. Like it's not like, not like oh I oh, we only have like Ruby on Rails people like there's um there's an instructor there that was doing like red team cybersecurity before oh, wow. they did that yeah and another person like went the traditional computer science route and he will talk your ear off about like low level memory and yes how and that's going on so yeah all like, that fun stuff so yeah when we get our crash pointers. course on big o notation You're and stuff lucky like that you don't have to worry <laughs> deal with pointers my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah my partner um is doing their undergrad at cu uh-huh cu boulder here um and that's primarily or a lot of that is taught in C++. So, In a way, that's kind of good that they're still doing that, though. <laughs> we need more Cobalt developers, because mainframes ain't going away. Uh, actually, yeah. So I, before I worked at John's office, I used to work at Farmers in the National level. And um, 
they still dial into an old yes. AES 400 mainframe. Yes. And I met somebody that programmed on one of those, and <laughs> she's like, yeah, I was doing this, and I just never stopped. Yeah, and I mean, I've been surprised. I kind of, you know, like Final Fantasy, it's like retro's cool, so mainframes are cool. But um, there are serious business reasons to keep on using mainframes mm. um, from a cost standpoint and efficiency standpoint for certain calculations. Uh, that's pretty crazy. Mm -hmm. All right, it's time for, what did I call it? Industry jargon <laughs> impressions. I need to come up with a name for it because I've been doing it for every podcast for the last like five or six. So I'm just going to give you a term and you give me your, and the reason I do this is because Perfect. marketing people have flooded the industry with terminology. And anytime there's something that, um, there's a new opportunity to create a new term, they will do it. <laughs> so it's always fun to kind of get people's impressions. Um, all right, so the first one, because this is my favorite nemesis term, is AI ops. AI ops, cool. So let's see. So I'm not super familiar with that term in That's that context totally because it seems pretty nebulous, but it is my, nebulous. so here's my best guess. It's like when you have some sort of machine learning algorithm to help with your deployments or do something, I guess, but I most AI, so I think people use the term AI incorrectly. It is usually machine learning. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think it comes in a lot when it has to do with issue detection and remediation. So more on the, the production side. It'd be great if it got in the development side. Mm. Yeah, well, so when it comes to that, it's like if you have, if you have decent logging and then just like real, real quick, just off the shelf stuff, I feel like you could do a lot of what you just described where you Correct. don't need a whole machine learning model. You don't need magic fairy dust. And that's my my talk is like, stop giving me fairy dust. And what, yeah, and the, that's what I feel about that is like AI is a new like black box term. So yeah. it's like, oh. It, so where it's beneficial is it certainly allows you to have the conversation. And that's what I say about all industry terms, hmm. even DevOps. Because when DevOps was first a term, I was one of the first haters of the term. <laughs> um, but now I'm like, it's in my title. So it, it at least allows you to have a conversation around a subset of things. That's the only value that these terms bring to the table. Because you could be DevOps without calling it DevOps. All right, next term, feature flagging. Feature flagging? Yeah, feature flagging. Hmm. Okay. So, that to me is like a way of prioritizing stuff, but... It's, um, yeah. so what's interesting is feature flagging is kind of pitched as this, again, kind of magic test and production thing. Um, <laughs> oh, that's but its benefits are more organizational. So basically you wrap. Now some people do feature flagging essentially the equivalent of it with um, branches in their repo. Okay. But it's like feature, you a couple of encapsulate code within feature uh, in, a, in a feature flag so that 
you can turn on and off a feature flag at any point in time. Oh, interesting. And it'll just shut off that portion of code. So there's two key benefits from my point of view is like product teams can start building against a feature without waiting for the entire feature to be done before they deploy. So you can deploy aspects of the feature, just you don't turn it on yet. But the other benefit is kind of like organization and continuity across the team. Or if a new feature breaks something, you can just turn it <laughs> off in production versus doing rollbacks and all that stuff. So that reminds me of a design pattern that I've heard the microlith. <laughs> no, tell me about it. Okay, well, yeah, it's like you got a. Um, I haven't heard that one yet. Well, it's um, microlith. Yeah, well, it's like now microservices are super trendy. Yeah. So we've got, but it's that kind of idea where it's like we're building a monolith and then we can just instead of breaking it off into microservices, we'll just cordon off and encapsulate mm. from within the right. monolith. So I think kind that, of a logical. Yeah. yeah um, as far as what you were talking about with feature flagging, I'm like, oh, that's a that's an interesting way to do that. Um, what I feel about that is that um, it depends on how coupled your code base is. If if you've got it all loosely coupled and you're able to do that, awesome, go for it. But um, I feel like especially as code bases get a little older and stuff gets a stuff tends to instinctively get a little more coupled, so. Mm -hmm. No, go for it. All right, last one. So okay. I think you get you to your dish, which this was really good, by the way. Great choice. Oh, yeah. Um, what is my last one? Try to do something a little more controversial. No ops. That's like the most controversial term <laughs> in the DevOps space. No ops, okay. So is that the entire um, push to remove the human element from DevOps? I think that's one aspect of it, okay. but it's used, vendors use it for a shock factor from what I gather right now. <laughs> it's mostly a shock factor. Um, well, first you say, and then I'll give my opinion, because I, okay. I have strong opinions about all these terms. <laughs> that's why I asked. That's that. fine. Very strong opinions. I'm very pro feature flags, by the way. Mm. I'm not anti-AI ops, I just want, if you're gonna talk about AI ops, I think you're, it's imperative that the person who brings it up ties it to some value, yeah. not just be loosey-goosey about fairy dust. <laughs> um, but no ops, so no ops for some companies is the operator is fully gone. Literally, it's just the dev team. For some companies, it's more focused on the automation um, and the requirement of IT or slash ops to be involved in the development process. That's interesting to me because that seems almost like a step backwards. Because that's, well, no, that's how, before DevOps was a thing, it's like, the problem that DevOps was supposed to solve is that it's supposed to be a bridge between the ops team and their silo and the development and their silo. So by going like, oh yeah, no, we're totally going to cut DevOps out and just have an ops team again. I'm like, hey, cool, you. Or no, no ops team. Mm. Like the absence of operations. Well, I mean, the only way that I can see that is if you've got like somebody handling your AWS that you can call when stuff hits sideways. Right. <laughs> so. so that's my point. Yeah, exactly. Is there's always an operator somewhere. And even if they're paying it. 
or they're in-house, there is an operator. Exactly. And you lose a lot of efficiencies by not having the operator in-house. All right, I'm gonna let you get to your food. Well, thank you, Chris, for no, doing no. this, and I, I, uh, I look forward to finding out more about how your uh, new role is going. Sure thing. And, uh, and here's one and how it adapts. I got Shoot. one last hot take Leave on us this. with a key thought. <laughs> sure. <laughs> These acronyms are like just... Yeah, please. Oh, appreciate it. The fact that we like acronym bomb and make new terms up all the time, we can blame it on the marketing team, but it's like the only thing that we're doing there is artificially gatekeeping, adding more barriers to entry. That's right. Um, yeah, it's like... Kind of weaponizing the industry for those who aren't in it, right? Well, yeah, it's the same. It's, um, But it's the same thing even within tech. Like, the security people have their set of acronyms you have to learn. The operations have their set of acronyms yeah. you have to learn. And even if there's way more commonality <laughs> between those, by artificially siloing that and going like, oh, yeah, no, this is maybe a slightly different concept that you're exposing, then it's it's just regressive to the industry at whole. Yeah. And I guess that might be my boot camper mindset because like, yeah, I was an insurance agent, we had personal trainers, we had, um, gosh, uh, there were like maybe one or two people that had any kind of development background before going into Turing. So uh, if they can go from zero to you know, developer Be ready in seven months without knowing any of the jargon to go forward. Maybe we need to look at taking out some of that jargon I to begin with. I absolutely agree. <laughs> Very astute. I agree with you. Now let's start a cause to make that happen. That's what we should do. Forget no ops, <laughs> no lingo. Perfect. All right, Chris, thank you. Yeah. And uh, look forward to catching up soon. Awesome. I'll be in touch.